do not need to look far to see what happens when human nature runs amok. We need more of you. We need more love, more grace, more mercy. We need more goodness and kindness and gentleness. We need more of you. We need more of you in our lives personally. We need more of you in our homes, in our relationships. And clearly, Lord, the world is aching and needs more of you. We ask that you would do battle in the spiritual realm. There are times, Lord, when it seems like the enemy, the spiritual forces of wickedness seem to have their way. So we declare in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that you would do battle in the spiritual realm and that you would fend off the attacks of the enemy, the lies of the enemy, the deceptions of the enemy. We remember and we recall your faithfulness to a stubborn humanity that continues to think we know better and can go our own way and continually find ourselves in turmoil and trouble. So this morning we say, as these words remind us, more of you, you need to increase and we need to decrease. Lord Jesus, we pray. And as we unfold your scriptures that have been preserved for centuries and millennia, we pray that you would illuminate the truth for us. What a privilege it is that we can gather like this. What a privilege it is that we can proclaim your name, Jesus. Have Bibles in our language, in a land of freedom and peace. And we stand in solidarity with sisters and brothers in other places who are persecuted for their faith. And so, Lord Jesus, help us to lean in and to be transformed into your likeness and to be those who will willingly be agents and ambassadors of Christ Jesus in our day today. All of this we pray. We pray. Hear our prayers. Jesus, amen and amen. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, music team. Eric, Braden, Jordan, Felicity, Cam, Kim, Lorraine, Wayne, Jed, Kevin in the back. Good morning. My name's Gary. I'm another one of the pastors here. It's good to be together with you, with you online. We do this thing called Q&R where we take time to respond to questions that you have. It's important that we ask questions, um, that you ask questions, that you interact, that you wrestle with what is being said and sung and heard and thought, and that you rummage around and ask questions and we can interact. A couple of weeks ago, we were talking about uh, meekness, the, the verse we're going through 
uh, this Sermon on the Mount, and we were talking about um, meekness or gentleness, and we're discussing with some people, and a, a, a definition that I use for meekness or gentleness is strength under control. So gentleness is strength under control. You, children have it, adults have it, but when you have strength or power, but it's under control as opposed to being exerted um, or force. Last week, again, we were talking about um, righteousness and fairness. And uh, we had this question come to us that I wanted to share with you. How do we lean into God's sovereignty when life isn't fair? And what you'll see is... Um, uh, Elaine Hallman and our Reflections team is curating some artwork for us that coincides with our sermon series. And so this was the um, piece from last Sunday, and you'll see another piece coming in shortly, but that's also uh, out in the foyer, and I encourage you to take a minute or two to reflect on the, the, um, the art as it's being curated and uh, unfolding along with our series. How do we lean into God's sovereignty when life isn't fair? was a question that came in from last week. And it's a good question when life isn't fair. And I can relate to that, even personally. Because there are times when I'm feeling like life isn't fair. When my daughters are struggling, or my extended family is struggling. Yours. And I, I think, like, it just doesn't seem fair. I'm a pastor. Surely my daughters shouldn't, struggle like my my extended family and and I and I feel that and then Kimberly comes alongside and says Gary I, be, just because you're a pastor doesn't mean you get to sidestep life as it unfolds and that is a challenge for me, but for all of us to think, when we think of fairness, what is the model or the reference that we're using when it comes to fairness? And we're going to hear throughout Jesus' sermon that there is this dimension when he is making these promises and declaring these uh, points, that there is, in one aspect, there's this sense that it is already unfolding in the here and now, in our present but there is also another aspect that is the not yet fully completed. And that is, includes this aspect of fairness or righteousness or justice. Some of that is happening already in the present. But not completely, not fully. We know that. We experience that. Sometimes there is justice and sometimes there is not. There is this already but not yet And one of the key things that we heard last week in that, some of the passages that I read is this word spelled F-A-I-T-H. We talk about it, but it's actually real. Faith is when fairness, for example, or righteousness isn't being experienced, but we believe so strongly in the covenant as we've been uh, singing about, in the promises of God, that He will actually um, exude and make things right. That even though it is presently not so, we believe and are convinced that someday He will. Sisters and brothers, it is what I call faith 
in real life. And I believe what he is calling us to in the case of righteousness or justice is also to be, as people of God, followers of Jesus Christ, to be agents, ambassadors for Christ, ambassadors for justice as well. That at least we will be those who seek out and are ambassadors of what is fair and just in your workplace, in your school, on the playground, in your neighborhood, and with your neighbor. That's Q&R. I'm going to pause later on for more Q&R as we interact with what I'm going to continue saying this morning in the next part of the Sermon on the Mount, these Beatitudes. As a social psychologist writes in his book, Social, I mentioned this last week, he said that fairness tastes like chocolate. It has the same neurological impact as as chocolate does. If faithfulness tastes like chocolate, I would also want to um, posit that revenge sure is delicious too. Payback. I recall working downtown Toronto with multi-ethnic staff team during 9-11. When 9-11 happened, and the towers were hit. And it was very complex. In fact, what happened, we were in the high tower building at the time. And we didn't know what was going on. So uh, our, our offices were told we needed to vacate. And we got out onto ground floor downtown Toronto. And it was just um, packed with people. And there were soldiers that seemed to just pop out of the ground. The subways had been turned off. The uh, trains had been turned off. And I had to walk for miles west in order to meet up with Kimberly in order to get back to the house. But what I remember in the ensuing weeks was all this conflicting thoughts and, and these conflicting emotions that I had around what is the right and proper response. And we see it being uh, meted out in the world stage again today. It is like uh, civility and barbarism, as G.K. Chesterton says, run in parallel throughout human history. We see it again being meted out in, on the world stage continually. We are conditioned, the worldview conditions us toward revenge and payback through books that we read, even little children's books that we read at bedtime, movies and TV. It's about that. In fact, our definition of justice in many cases equals eye for an eye. That's, in a sense, what the world view deems as justice. Here, are, this table will demonstrate some of the typical um, Occurrences and typical responses. Enemies, kill them. Haters, hate them. Those who curse, curse them. Abusers, exploit them. Strikers, slug them back. Beggars, avoid them. Thieves, prosecute them. It's the worldview. The people um, in Jesus' day 
were also shaped by a very similar worldview. And in fact, whether it's today or whether it's 2,000 years ago, the concept of compassion would seem um, lame. It's, it's, compassion is kind of soft. It's not something that we really, it's tame. The people that were around and gathered around Jesus when he was making this Sermon on the Mount, they were being conditioned by Old Testament teaching where they were hearing in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, they were actually hearing eye for an eye. In fact, Deuteronomy is very strong. It almost, it would seem like it was a requirement. But it's even more, listen, the condition of the people, the circumstance of the people that were listening to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. This is a map of the political borders at the time of Jesus. And what you'll see there are those names, Antipas, uh, Archelaus, um, over there in Philip. Those are the sons of Herod the Great. So when Herod the Great died, he installed his sons. His sons were installed as essentially rulers over different areas and aspects of Israel. So the people were not only being taught and conditioned by a particular perspective from the Old Testament, but they were actually experiencing the harshness and the oppression in real time because of these uh, Roman uh, leaders who were occupying their land. These were the people and the circumstance and the environment within which they were sitting listening to Jesus. There was a, a Jewish sect called the Essenes. And they were kind of, they removed themselves from general society in this time and era. But they were basically a, a sect that they lived by the idea of hating your enemies. Then there were political rebels at the time of Jesus. The political rebels were convinced that you needed to fight against these occupiers and oppressors. Oh, and then there were the Pharisees. And you've read and heard about the Pharisees. The Pharisees kept um, teaching and advancing some uh, Old Testament teaching, and actually, aside from the 600 plus laws that they were putting on as burden, they were also teaching that this anointed one that would come would be an earthly king who would take hold of the Jewish people and do physical battle against these rulers. In other words, be violent and engage in war. That was their interpretation of the anointed one, the Messiah. That's what he's going to do. But is that God's mercy? Is that the solution? Is that the option? Is that the offer? How will the people of God experience mercy? And I put divine in brackets because I believe that mercy is always divine. It is not human nature. Mercy is from our Creator God. How will people experience it? We read the Sermon on the Mount, but 
I'm trying to bring us to what is actually going on at the time because when Jesus preaches in this occasion, it is audacious. It is so contrary to what people are actually being taught and what their life experience is. And then he comes to this part in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, and he says this really radical phrase, blessed are the merciful... For they will receive mercy. And in, a, in the first instance, that sounds good. And it is good news to those that are marginalized and oppressed, living in an occupied land, because the negative is implied. Those that do not show mercy will also not receive mercy. So in this way, in that initial sense, it sounds very good. Because the people in the crowd certainly were not experiencing mercy. Or at least hardly ever. But what is mercy? Mercy is, there are two aspects, two components to mercy. One is this idea of withholding something that is otherwise warranted or deserved. Withholding something that is otherwise warranted or deserved. So in that sense, mercy is different than grace because grace is giving something that is not warranted or deserved. Mercy in the one aspect is withholding something that would be otherwise warranted or deserved. And the second aspect to mercy, these words like compassion or kindness, it is a concern for people under very serious or dire circumstances. I would summarize mercy in this as a, this bucket, I would summarize it with the word care. Forgiveness is an example and the culmination of mercy. It is both a withholding of something that would be otherwise deserved and a care for the person. Mercy is a part of the very essence of our Creator God. As defined here, mercy is part of His essence. It's part of what makes God God, who He is. Yes, there is also what could be described as divine anger or wrath as Scripture would attest. Our merciful God is angered by violence and oppression and idolatry. But His anger and His wrath are not intrinsic to His character. They are not a part of His character apart from human action. It is what I would call the pain of love. 
So his anger is restricted, but his mercy abounds. And this is demonstrated through his faithfulness to a stubborn and stiff-necked human race, to human beings throughout human history. Not isolated to any particular group, but to people. He continues to be faithful and loving and caring and merciful to people even when we continually are obstinate and go our own way in our thoughts, in our actions, and in our deeds. And then finally, as though that were not enough, our Creator God demonstrates His mercifulness in the person of Christ Jesus. But how does this actually work? This phrase that he uses is, it seems like a conundrum. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. How, how will we experience God's mercy? Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Does that mean that divine mercy is based on works? That, like, that if you show mercy, you get mercy, you can earn it? Does it mean that, that some, like, that people deserve it? That, that there's some merit? There's only one way, as Jesus proclaims here, there's one way for people to experience divine mercy. For divine mercy to be realized, not merely demonstrated, but to be realized, requires expression, requires action. Our Creator could have simply pronounced forgiveness, for example. He could have simply pronounced His mercy, but He didn't. He chose to send His Son. He chose to send Christ Jesus, who was born in the likeness of man. And He demonstrated, He expressed His mercy. So divine mercy necessarily requires expression. It is through expressing that it is received. Imagine that, imagine your, your, your credit card statement. Imagine whatever loans you have, student loan, whatever it is. Imagine if you have a mortgage. Whatever it is that you have as a debt that you owe right now, imagine those numbers. I'm not going to ask you to say them out loud. Imagine all those numbers. Now imagine that a bank or a creditor 
could knock on your virtual door and ask for you to cut that in half or to completely pay that off. Because you owe it. You already have the benefit of what it is that you're in debt for. You have the house. You have the education. But you have this outstanding debt. Now imagine if you were asked to pay it off now. That could be warranted. But that's not what happens with divine mercy. With divine mercy... through the person and blood of Jesus Christ, he cuts a check. He cuts a check to each of you and all of you, to those who will receive. To all who will receive. And the amount is unlimited. So you know that number you have? It exceeds that number. The debt you have, the debt you will incur is essentially here. But this is not yet mercy. Not fully. Blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. Is this any good to any of us yet? No. What do you need to do? What do you need to do in order for this to be of any use to you? Accept it, and then what? What? You have to cash it. Mercy, just like sorrow leads us to weep, and joy leads us to dance and sing, If we have truly experienced the deposit of mercy, mercy leads to mercy. It leads to being merciful. We actually cash in mercy through expressing it towards other people. Malcolm Gladwell in his book, David and Goliath talks about two family experiences in Manitoba, Reynolds and Dirksons, both families, devastating loss in their families, horrible. I'm not getting into the details. But one family chose to cash mercy and be merciful, and the other did not. And one experienced mercy, and one did not. And it was visible when meeting with the families. What Jesus is talking about here is completely upside down to the worldview that we are conditioned to hear and maybe even believe. But merciful is more powerful than any sword or gun because it changes living lives. Central to Jesus' message, central to this is 
Christ Jesus himself. And central to Jesus' ministry is the cross. It is at the cross where we see grace and mercy unfold. And it is the cross style of living, a cross-shaped way of living that Jesus calls people to. That's what makes people followers of Jesus. And what he says in Luke chapter 6 is, take up your cross and follow me. Because that is what will change the world. And this is what demonstrates what matters and is so important to our Creator. What is valuable and important to Him is mercy. What is valuable and important to Him is relationships with people. Our Creator is looking to make things beautiful even when they're not happy. It is resurrection to life out of otherwise dirt and manure. And that's what the springtime shows us, that things come out of dirt and manure, testifying to resurrection, testifying to life. So friends, I echo what Jesus is saying, that to experience mercy requires us to express mercy and to be merciful. It is the only way that all of us benefit from divine mercy. When we understand that the Lord has shown mercy to us, He has given us something, and then we freely express that compassion, that care towards other people, that forgiveness towards other people. We are extending and amplifying the presence and character and kingdom of God. We're extending and amplifying His mercy. But at the same time, we become benefactors of it as well. You will only know and experience it as you express it. And don't hesitate to think that we shouldn't be doing it for our own gain or benefit. Because it is good to have and experience the mercies of the Lord. Love your neighbor as yourself. We need his mercy. We desire his mercy. And through expressing it, we receive it. I want to pause for Q&R. Um, Darren's going to come. If you, have, you want a text or email to ask, at westviewchurch.ca, you can text or email. You can stand where you are, and we'll bring a microphone to you, and you can ask your question, or you can write it on those cards and deposit it in the box. But we want to take a few minutes for your questions here this morning. Are you wrestling with this? Is this making any sense to you? Do you have a, well, what about this, or a, what about that? This is a great opportunity to interact and ask your questions. Anyone, anything on the inbox? Yeah, we've got one on the inbox, and then if somebody needs the mic, just put your yeah, hand up let for us me. know. Um, so the first one in the inbox is, as Christians, 
How can we reconcile a merciful God and a violent world? In the context of war that affects more the innocent, how do we pray when we are sure they will be affected anyways? Right. Yeah, so, I mean, that's a lot there. Uh, but how do we reconcile a merciful God and a violent world? And a violent world, part A. How do we reconcile a merciful God in a violent world? And we are living with that on the world stage, but people might even be living with that personally in their personal context with different forms of violence. And again, I would say if we start with Christ Jesus at the center and we go to the cross as the center of the center, what we see there is what God, through Jesus Christ, was willing to do in order to bring people to Him. He was willing to sacrifice as opposed to force and kill. So if we want to know about the character of our Creator, we look to the person of Jesus Christ. He was the one on the cross. It was human beings who exerted violence. And so we need to acknowledge that we are in a world of spiritual forces of wickedness that use violence as tools towards the ends of death and destruction. That is not from the Lord. Those are the opposing forces of wickedness. Where we are, and we're going to be speaking in a couple of weeks on peace, but where we are as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, we express mercy, we express righteousness where we are, believing that we can be deposits of the kingdom presently where we live, but understanding that there is this battle going on and that it will not be fully completed or realized until Christ reappears. But at least we should not confuse the sources of love and the source of violence. And we continue to persist in prayer and ask the Holy Spirit. But I want to also say that if you see something that is violent in your experience of day-to-day -day life, then an ambassador of Jesus Christ is one who steps into that, not avoids it. So it needs to be practical. If you see a big guy beating up a small guy, you need to step in if you're an ambassador of Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that you start beating people up, but you get in the way as an ambassador of Jesus Christ. So that's a, a part of it. There was another component to it. Yeah, so the second part was, in the context of war that affects mostly the innocent, mm. how do we pray when we are sure they will be affected anyways? Right. So it seems almost fatalistic, right, that we're praying and there's a lot of innocent people that are affected by war and is prayer making any difference? I think one of the main things that prayer does is it affects the prayer. When we pray, if you're willing to pray and bring your supplications, I believe the Holy Spirit is working on you and affecting you 
and communicating and challenging and convicting you? Is there something that you need to be involved in? Is there something that you're hearing the Holy Spirit saying to you? And brothers and sisters, I refuse to allow the enemy to silence me from talking to our Creator and pleading the case of innocent lives no matter where they are. The enemy cannot have my prayers. He cannot have my voice. And when the innocents do not have a voice, then we will be their voice, but he will not be able to silence the people and the prayers of those who follow Jesus Christ. So we pray and we believe. And maybe we don't see. Maybe we don't. Not now, not yet. But I believe in His righteousness. And I believe He will make everything right. Yeah, a few more came in. Uh, the next one is a comment that I think many of us would agree with. It just says, powerful sermon. Uh, the next question is, uh, is mercy always the right response, or is there time for payback and justice? And then it goes on to say, there's a fear that if you show mercy to an aggressor, that you are sending them the message that they can continue their aggression. In this line of thinking, there are many instances of God telling the Israelites to wipe out whole cities, Sodom and Gomorrah as an example. Is mercy always the response we should have as Christians, or are there times for payback or justice? Okay, so you've had time to write full paragraphs. <laughs> so, lucky me. But good. I think now we're getting somewhere, right? I could, I mean, we could unpack a lot of parts of that. I, I want to, for those of you that are interested in what is depicted as violence in and attested, ascribed to God in the Old Testament, Gregory Boyd has a two-volume set, Crucifixion of the Warrior God. And I would encourage you, if you're trying to get uh, your, a handle on it, that is an excellent treatment. It's, it's a full, proper treatment. I won't be able to do all of that here. But the question is... Mercy always right, and is there um, a right time for uh, payback? I want to at least start with that. We're not being asked. Mercy does not mean martyrdom. I think mercy requires a great deal of creativity. We're, it's compassion, it's kindness, it's concern. So as Tosh was praying earlier about it being active and creative, mercy requires being active and creative in my concern for somebody else, in my care for somebody else, in my compassion for somebody else. What are the actions that I can do? But they necessarily need to be other than violent ones. But it does not mean do nothing But it requires Holy Spirit inspiration to figure out what that is going to be in the given circumstance. 
It means actually get involved. I remember um, I was in downtown Toronto in a cab, and I was driving past these projects, and um, there was a circle of guys and they had encircled this kid, and they were beating this kid up. And it looked like a kind of a beating up that was going to be bad, because the kid had already gone onto the ground, and they were still wailing on him. And we were at a red light, and I saw it, and I wasn't thinking. I opened the door, and I got out, and I started walking towards going, Hey, hey, what's going on? The project is like 20 guys. Hey, hey, what's going on? And then they stopped. The kid that was in the center stumbled to his feet and got off. And then all these guys started coming towards me. <laughs> so full transparency, I realized what was going on, got back into the cabbie and yelled, drive, drive, drive. <laughs> Mercy is going to be active and it's going to be creative. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you cannot be wielding the sword to, to end sword wielding. Are you with me? You cannot use a sword to end the use of swords. As to the matter of all this business ascribed to uh, uh, violence, ascribed to God in the Old Testament... Let me give it to you in, in, in two minutes. I'm just going to borrow from Gregory Boyd here. Because we know Jesus, we don't suspend that we know Jesus. Because we know Jesus and the cross, that becomes the center for how we interpret life and scripture. A Christocentric hermeneutic, and I would even say a cruciform, cross-shaped. So now let me, how do we use that? We use that even to interpret Old Testament. So let me give you an example. I know my wife, Kimberly. I know her well. I'm down on 9th Street, and I see her across the street, and she's just come out of a restaurant. And I see her across the street, and I see her with her purse, and she seems to be hitting another guy. She's beating on him. I know Kimberly, and I know all about her for 30 plus years. I know what she's like. So I look at that situation, and what I have to come to realize and think is, there's something more going on. There's more than meets the eye. Daniel Kahneman talks about what you see is all there is. That's a, a, a cognitive error. What I see is not all there is. There's more going on than I initially see or understand. When we look at the Old Testament, if we see and start with Jesus Christ and we begin to look at the Old Testament, we need to at least pause and say, there's more going on than just what I'm seeing at the surface. And that could be a whole series, but we'll just give you that at least. Uh, there's one more. One more, and then you, the roast is burning. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how do we balance mercy with injustice? How do we battle mercy with injustice? Right. Yeah. I. I it, this is really good. I. I am convinced that when Jesus was giving this sermon, that he had was preaching 
in a particular sequence. So he, his first sentence last week, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be satisfied. And then he said, blessed are the merciful. So merciful comes after a hunger and thirst for righteousness. So I think that righteousness or justice requires you to exude mercy. There are a lot of injustices, and it is because at least followers of Jesus, if we're going to be honest, we're comfortable and we're complacent because it will cost us something. So we, mercy is necessary for justice. Thanks. We had one more comment come in okay. uh, that I think is in response to a comment you made. So it says, the sword has its place as a tool, but not the only tool. Um, in World War II, the only way to deal with Nazis was the sword, followed by mercy. I'll take that as a comment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but let me just challenge you on that. It's a tool... Yes. What kind of tool? When Jesus instructed his disciples to get a couple of machetes, they said, well, we've got two, and he said, that'll be plenty. That'll be plenty. Two out of, for 12 guys, or 70 people? And then when Jesus, uh, Peter Jesus was about to be arrested and Peter thought he would try and defend Jesus. He took out his sword and he's going to come to Jesus' defense. And Jesus said, dude, that was supposed to be for clearing the brush. Do not allow the worldview to truncate your divine thinking. There are myriad of possibilities beyond violence. Remember it was at the turn of A.D. where they were still teaching that a ruler would come with a sword to make things right physically. And what God did in Jesus Christ was something entirely other. It's the cross of Jesus Christ, friends that shapes our way of thinking and living. So we'll, we'll end there. Thank you, Darren. Dude, I appreciate it, man. Absolutely. It's so good. I'm going to invite the music team to come up. Thank you for your questions. I, I, this probably created a bunch more, and that's good. Um, I want to leave you with a couple of things here. First of all, I want to... Three C's. Um, in... Um, in honor of Tyler, who's not here this morning, I'm going to go with a, a, a handy mechanism for us to remember. So three C's. Consider or confess if you have been given the deposit of mercy from our Creator. Have you been given, have you been shown, have you been given the deposit of mercy from our Creator at any time in your life? Think of that. To what extent has the Lord been merciful to you? Or are you like, 
I know in my life, I, mercy is to the roof and, and more. To what extent has our Creator deposited mercy into your life? To what extent? And if we confess that, what is your response to His divine mercy in your life? You know, uh, when we visit friends in other countries, I will say that there is dancing in the aisles because of an understanding of this very fact, the extent of our Creator's mercy towards me and us, and it is worth celebrating before the King. The second C is this, clear or forgive. Mercy will necessarily mean at least that you will forgive those as we pray, forgive those as we are forgiven. Forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. And forgiveness is a choice, and it's something you can do as an expression of mercy. And it does not require receipt. You can forgive somebody whether they accept it, receive it, or not. It doesn't depend on that. It is you choosing to forgive and not hold something against somebody else. It is you saying, you, you did this, this person did this thing. They have this debt with you, so to speak. But you're forgiving it. You're choosing to wipe it out. You're not carrying it anymore. That's that. Freedom. Free, my Lord. Free at last. Thank God Almighty. And then the last C is care. Will we care? Will we be compassionate to the neighbors in our neighborhood here? We have a profound opportunity to be a church that expresses care and mercy and compassion to our real, legit neighborhood here. MAO, MBO, everybody. And it can be small steps. Do you care? Will you care? Because small steps become habits and then habits become instincts. And all of a sudden, you're instinctively caring and compassionate. And it's not lame. It's cross-shaped power. And caring will move us from not just being for somebody, but being with them. The most costly thing you have is your time and attention. Will you be with someone? Will you be with a neighbor, a friend, a colleague, a student? Will you be with someone and sit with them in silence and listen? Give them their voice. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Thank you. Thank you for being here this morning. Thank you for connecting with us online. If you have children at Westview Kids, they're upstairs. Convene with them. Reconvene with them upstairs. We have a prayer room. Elders are here to pray with you to be with you, to be for you, pray for you. Sarah and the 
music team are going to lead us in singing the benediction this morning.